Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Connie Traub, MD, about the article, Pediatric Delirium in Critically Ill Children, an International Point Prevalence Study, published in the April 2017 issue of Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Traub is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York, where she works as a PICU attending and clinical researcher. Welcome, Connie. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures to share? I do not. Okay. Can you start by giving us some background on delirium? What is it and why is it important? Absolutely. Thank you. Delirium is acute brain dysfunction that arises in the setting of a serious illness. So in order to be diagnosed with delirium, a patient has to display an acute and fluctuating change in cognition and awareness. And that altered state has to be the direct result of either the underlying medical condition or as a side effect of its treatment. So it's, it's kind of an acute non-traumatic brain injury. Just as when one's really sick, it can affect their kidneys and their liver and their lungs. When one's really sick, it can affect their brain. And the behavioral manifestation of that brain dysfunction is what we call delirium. So what do we know about delirium in children? Well, what we know now is a lot more than we knew just a few years earlier. We know that it's a very frequent complication of pediatric critical illness. We know that there are identifiable risk factors. We can almost predict which children are at higher risk for developing delirium during their ICU stay. And significantly, we know that children who experience delirium do poorly. It is a pretty strong association between delirium and bad outcome, including mortality, but also increased length of time on mechanical ventilation and longer hospital length of stay. How do we tell whether a child is delirious? It's an excellent question. I believe Because of the complexity of assessing children with their varying developmental levels, we in the pediatric critical care community are probably about a decade behind of our adult colleagues where delirium has been diagnosed um, for quite some years now. The way one needs to diagnose delirium in children is a bit developmentally specific. What's normal behavior in a three-year-old is highly abnormal in a 12-year-old. And because of that, I think we were a little bit afraid of exploring this this topic uh, in children until recently. So the way we now diagnose delirium is with Uh, very well-validated bedside tools that have been developed over the past several years. There's two different versions of tools that people are using. One is an interactive tool, and it's the pediatric confusion assessment method for the ICU. And there is a preschool version available as well for children six months to five years of age. The other is a more observational approach, and that's the Cornell assessment for pediatric delirium that was used in this study. And and what these tools do is they allow the the bedside provider, the person who's been observing and interacting with the child over the course of the day, to use objective measures to assess uh, for this alteration in awareness and cognition and diagnose delirium in real time at the bedside. And what about children who are developmentally delayed? Uh, Those children are uh, notoriously difficult to assess. The criteria still apply, but what's necessary in a child with underlying delay is to establish that 
the behaviors that are being observed are in fact an alteration from baseline. So if a child never makes eye contact and doesn't make eye contact in the ICU, that's not an indication that they're delirious. That might just be their underlying static encephalopathy. So in addition to a positive screen in a developmentally delayed child, what's also necessary is to establish that this is an acute and fluctuating process. So one does need to uh, understand something of the child's baseline in order to confirm the positive delirium screen as in fact a delirium diagnosis in children with underlying developmental delay. So tell us about your study. What led you to do this study? Well, we at Cornell uh, had been studying delirium for several years. We have colleagues in Vanderbilt who have been doing the same. And we strongly suspected that this wasn't a, a local or a regional phenomenon. We were pretty confident that delirium was present in other units as well. And over the past several years, more and more pediatric intensivists have become aware and worried about this problem, and we're reaching out to us for, for help in uh, detecting and diagnosing it. And we thought that this would be a wonderful opportunity to do a kind of widespread surveillance for delirium, a, a point prevalence study for delirium in ICUs in different parts of North America and around the world on specific study days. Uh, how did you do this study? We invited anyone who was interested, anybody. Uh, we sent out an email invitation to members of the Pediatric Neurocritical Care Research Group, and sites that were interested opted in on the two pre-designated study days that were simply chosen at random. Every child within all of these ICUs was screened for delirium. We collected a very limited data set uh, about demographic and treatment-related factors and pooled all the data to get a kind of comprehensive picture of the state of delirium in pediatric critical illness in 2016. So who all participated in this study? We had uh, 25 different pediatric ICUs. Uh, majority were in the United States, but we also had participating ICUs from the Netherlands, New Zealand, Australia, and Saudi Arabia. And over the two days, we assessed 994 children. What were your main results? Well, we found that delirium was present in 25% of the children assessed. So one out of every four children in these 25 different ICUs was delirious uh, on the study day. Uh, that's a extremely high number, and perhaps most significantly, a majority of these children would likely have gone undiagnosed without routine screening performed. As I'm sure you've experienced in, in your ICU, uh, we tend to notice patients who are getting in the way of their care. So a child who has an agitated form of delirium who's difficult to sedate or interfering with their central line will get our attention. Often we just mask that agitated behavior with more sedation, which potentiates the problem. Um, but other times we'll recognize the delirium and address it. What we're not so good at recognizing is the far more common hypoactive delirium the delirium that manifests with a withdrawn child who uh, is less active than usual. And one really does require a high index of suspicion, a more routine screening approach in order to, to diagnose these children. And the reason it's important is because delirium in general and hypoactive delirium in particular is, is a strong marker for uh, children at risk for poor outcome. So with what this study showed is that pretty much in ICUs, Across the country, one out of four children are delirious on any given day, and routine screening is necessary in order to detect these children in a timely manner. 
Were you able to determine how many had hypoactive as opposed to hyperactive delirium? So unfortunately, in this point prevalence study, we were not. We are able to determine delirium subtypes in longitudinal studies where children are followed over the course of days. But at this single point in time study, we were not able to determine delirium subtype. We've done a very uh, extensive uh, single center study here at Cornell where we have shown that the hypoactive form of delirium is the most common. 46% of delirious children are hypoactive. 45% have a mixed subtype where they vacillate between the two, and only 8% of delirious episodes are, are consistent with that hyperactive, agitated, easily recognized subtype. So in the large-scale point prevalence study, we don't have subtyping, but in single-center studies both here and at other institutions we do, which strongly suggests that the vast majority of delirium in children is either hypoactive or mixed rather than the easily recognized agitated version. Were you able to identify risk factors for delirium? We were. With so many subjects, we actually had enough statistical power to determine uh, two different kinds of risk factors, the kind of demographic factors that aren't really adjustable, but also some modifiable factors, factors related to our treatment approaches. What, what were the risk factors that you identified? So young children, particularly children under the age of two, are at higher risk for developing delirium, as are children on mechanical ventilation, um, invasive mechanical ventilation, and those who require vasopressors, those who require pressure support. So mechanical ventilation and vasopressors are likely a function of severity of illness. So the youngest and sickest children are at higher risk for developing delirium while they're in the ICU. But more interestingly, we also found that our sedation practices, both pharmacologic and physical, are a uh, huge player. In particular, in this point prevalence study, we found that opiates, benzodiazepines much more so than opiates, and use of restraints were associated with significantly higher delirium rates. I think perhaps the most important finding for me from this study was the association between delirium and hospital length of stay. What we were able to do was look at delirium rates by ICU day. So we looked at all the children who were in the ICU for only one day and looked at delirium prevalence in that subgroup, and then all who were there two days, and then all who were there three days. And we really found that for days one through five, delirium prevalence rates varied little. It was about 20%. And that probably relates to those kind of unchangeable demographic illness-related factors. But then at around day six, we saw a huge increase in delirium rates where it nearly doubled. It went from about 20% to about 38% in those who were in the ICU for six or more days. And this likely uh, reflects an accumulation of those iatrogenic risk factors. These are the children who had been resilient to delirium earlier in their stay, who were now no longer able to tolerate the physical immobility, uh, being stuck in bed, the sleep deprivation, the lack of sensory input, and most particularly, the benzodiazepines. We saw this here in the point prevalence study and in kind of more nuanced longitudinal studies, this has, uh, is being shown again and again, where there are specific prescribing practices and specific environmental factors in the ICU that take children at risk for delirium and increase their delirium rates and also increase the duration of their delirious episodes. What are the implications of your study for our current practice in the PICU? 
So I, I think there's probably uh, two take-home messages here. The first is that delirium is prevalent. It's a frequent complication in our children. And if you're not noting it in about 25% of the children you're caring for, you are likely missing it. I'm sure there are some units where delirium rates are lower, maybe 15 or 20%, and many where it's higher. But I do think that a significant minority of the children we care for are experiencing delirium. So the first is just a kind of eyes wide open, recognize the problem. The second is the, the feasibility of implementing widespread delirium screening as standard of care. Here in this study, 25 different institutions with different cultures and different facility with delirium recognition and management were all able to screen nearly every child in their ICU without much difficulty. It doesn't require extensive education. It doesn't require expensive equipment. It just requires kind of a commitment to changing our culture to recognize uh, a problem that's been here for uh, probably generations, but has only recently been recognized as a significant predictor of, of poor outcome in children. Yes, it, some of this, at least the hyperactive form, is probably what we used to call ICU psychosis. Absolutely. And I, I believe the hypoactive form at its most severe is probably that encephalopathy of critical illness uh -huh. uh, my teachers mentioned to me in my training. I don't think delirium is a new problem. I think what's new is that we are labeling it and recognizing it for uh, the serious complication of critical illness that, that it is. I, I also think that it's, it's not just a function of, oh, it's frequent and we should label it. I think it's preventable. I think it's treatable. And I also think that the, the mortality data is pretty compelling. I'm not suggesting that delirium causes children to die, but there is a clear association between a diagnosis of delirium and increased mortality that remains true after controlling for severity of illness on admission, after controlling for the scales we use to predict mortality like the pediatric index of mortality. Delirium is an additional and important identifier of children at risk. So we need to recognize those children and give them the attention that they deserve. You have noted that children who are mechanically ventilated are at higher risk, but they are also the ones most likely to be treating, uh, be receiving the treatments that are associated with delirium. You mentioned narcotics and, and in particular benzodiazepines and also restraints. But we do all those things because we want to keep the kids from pulling out their tubes. How do we minimize delirium and still keep those patients safe? It's an excellent, excellent question. And it really does involve culture change, which is just very hard to do in any ICU, but particularly when dealing with children ranging from zero to 18 or often 21 years of age. The, the important distinction to make here is that even after controlling for need for mechanical ventilation, for severity of illness, there is an independent contribution of things like, in particular, benzodiazepines and physical restraints. There are alternative ways to keep children comfortable while mechanically ventilated. There are alternatives in particular to benzodiazepines that are safe and effective in children. I think we are conditioned to use benzodiazepines as, as frontline sedation. I do not think that is supported by the emerging literature. There are safer alternatives. So how do you approach this issue in your unit in terms of, uh, you do routine screening, but how, how do you prevent delirium and once you've identified it, how do you treat it? So those are two excellent questions. With respect to 
preventing delirium. There's nothing we can do about children being extremely sick or extremely young or developmentally delayed or the other kind of demographic factors that they come to us with. But a change in my unit that has seen a significant decrease in development of delirium is in our sedation approach. We have learned from our adult colleagues and we have embraced an analgesic-based approach to sedating our children. So it's no longer welcome to our ICU. Here's your sedative so you can tolerate your ventilator. We do not routinely sedate children on mechanical ventilation. We do routinely give them pain control. So we use opiates, we use NSAIDs, we use acetaminophen to keep children comfortable to treat their pain. Sometimes there is a sedative side effect to those medications, which is helpful. But what we have found is that when we eliminate pain, we have much less of a need for sedation. With less sedation on board, we have a better ability to recognize and treat pain, which leads to better control of pain. And a happy side effect of, of that of that happy cycle is that we are seeing far less delirium with an analgo sedation approach. So with less delirium, do you see less of the behavioral things that, like pulling out tubes that we worry about? We do. We do. We see fewer auto-extubations and fewer dislodgement of, of central lines. The natural thinking is that a sedated child is easier to care for. Uh, in fact, that's that's not the case. The, the difficult to sedate child, I'm putting that in quotes, Uh impossible to sedate child doesn't really occur. Generally, if a child is that refractory to sedation, it's because they have unrecognized delirium and the sedatives are contributing to that conundrum. So, you know, if 0.2 milligrams per kilogram of midazolam doesn't do the trick, it's doubtful that 0.3 will. And when one begins to recognize that those difficult to sedate children are in fact delirious, and when one adjusts their approach, these children become much, much more easily managed and cared for. And you're also able to wean their ventilator, and you're able to extubate them, you're able to shorten their hospital length of stay, and improve their overall experience. So what are the next steps in addressing the problem of delirium? I think the pediatric critical care community has come a very long way over the past decade in recognizing this problem, developing ways to diagnose it in real time at the bedside, and teasing out the kind of associated risk factors. I think what the next steps need to be are in two different directions. One is still investigational. We need to better understand the pathophysiology behind delirium. I believe there is a huge component of uh, inflammation involved, as well as kind of different pharmacokinetic and pharmacogenomic profiles that increase risk of delirium with specific sedative choices. So I think we need to do more research, both bench and clinical, into the etiology, the pathophysiology of pediatric delirium in order to figure out the best way to treat delirium when it does occur. The other clinical research that needs to be done are prospective interventional studies. So rather than the observational studies we've been doing until now, trying out different sedation regimens to detect how they improve delirium rates and long-term outcomes. Delirium in adults has been linked to long-term cognitive impairment, post-traumatic stress symptoms. In the children, this has not yet been shown. Uh, Hopefully it won't be, but we have not yet done those kind of long-term follow-up studies of children of pediatric ICU survivors six months, one year after discharge. And you made reference a couple of times to treatment of delirium. How do we treat it? So uh, the best way to treat delirium is to prevent it. <laughs> uh, once, once delirium occurs, the earlier you recognize it, the more amenable it is to intervention. So delirium of one day's duration is a lot easier to treat than delirium that's been there for two or three or four days. 
the treatment should be primarily non-pharmacologic. So one needs to, most importantly, identify why the child is delirious. We know that infection and inflammation predispose children to delirium. So if you have a child in your unit who hasn't been delirious for several days and then one day becomes delirious, perhaps there's a urinary tract infection that hasn't yet been diagnosed. Look for underlying medical precipitants of that delirium and identify and treat them because if the UTI is precipitating the delirium, uh, part and parcel of treatment for delirium is antibiotics for the urinary infection. So look for underlying medical causes and then look to minimize the atrogenic causes. Go through your med list and see, are all these medications absolutely essential or is the patient on them because somebody started it and we never got around to stopping it? Really minimize the the triggers that we know are associated with delirium, specifically sedation. And then try to optimize the environment. Children, especially young children, aren't designed to be still, and they certainly don't do well with sleep deprivation. There is no reason why we cannot have a critically ill child, even one on mechanical ventilation, who is awake and active during the day, sitting up in bed, watching their and interacting with their family members, coloring, and asleep at night. It's hard to do, but it is absolutely doable to mobilize and engage children during the day and improve their sleep at night. If one is unsuccessful at managing the kind of underlying medical trigger and minimizing the atrogenia and optimizing the environment, or if while one's doing all that, you just kind of need something to control the behaviors of delirium, then uh, many researchers do recommend the use of atypical antipsychotics. This is an off-label use. This has never been approved by the FDA to treat delirium in young children, but many of us have found considerable success in careful and specific use of atypical antipsychotics for children with refractory delirium. You're talking about a major cultural change for those of us who are used to getting into the spiral of the kid is moving sedated more, they move more, we sedate them more. It really is a, it's going to be a big culture change to overcome. But with the emerging data, such as what you have provided, I think that we will begin to make some progress. I, I absolutely agree. I think it's it's a huge culture change, but I, I think it's it's absolutely necessary. There is a need to change the way we go about our business. We've become very, very good at saving children's lives in all of our ICUs with the highest levels of severity of illness. Generally, between 96 and 98% of our patients survive their PICU stay. So what we need to focus on now is improving their long-term health and this is a key factor in, in doing that. The culture change is hard, but it is necessary and it is absolutely doable. The adults have been able to do this in their population, and, and we now need to do this in ours. It's our mission to, to improve the care that we provide to future generations of critically ill children. Well, that is incredibly well put concluding statement. Thank you for talking with us today, Connie. Thank you so much for your time. We've been talking today with Dr. Connie Trubb from Weill Cornell Medical College in New York about the article, Pediatric Delirium in Critically Ill Children, an International Point Prevalence Study, published in the April 2017 issue of Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. 
speak with a customer service representative, or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM. Dr. Margaret Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.